Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. From computers and cars to toasters and coffee makers, anything connected to the internet is part of the Internet of Things or IoT universe. In our latest podcast, Policy Director Elizabeth Gore moderates a conversation between shareholder Al Motter and policy advisor Greta Joins on how the consumer and industrial sectors are affected by IoT legislation and regulation domestically and internationally. As internet-enabled technology proliferates throughout the marketplace, can standards keep up? Al and Greta discuss this question, how IoT issues affect national security, how companies are addressing liability exposure, the development of privacy frameworks, and more. Welcome to another podcast here at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck. I'm Elizabeth Gore, Chair of Brownstein's Government Relations Department, and today we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things and data security with Al Motter and Greta Joins. So first, let me introduce Greta. Greta Joins is a policy advisor who brings more than a decade of Capitol Hill experience to her government relations practice. Greta has drafted key legislation and amendments related to the telecommunications and technology industries, including the .com Act, the Next Generation Public Safety Technology Act, and the FCC Collaboration Act. Prior to joining Brownstein, Greta served as Deputy Chief of Staff and Legislative Director for Congressman John Shimkus of Illinois, where she worked on three subcommittees, including the Energy Subcommittee, the Health Subcommittee, and the Environment and the Economy Subcommittee. She also advised the congressman on the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Communications and Technology. Second, I'd like to introduce Al Motter, shareholder, who's been listed as a top telecommunications lawyer since 2016 by Best Lawyers in America. Prior to joining the firm, Al served as Senior Communications Counsel for the Senate Commerce Committee. Al served in the role as Senior Staffer for Senator Ernest Hollings of South Carolina, who is both the ranking member and the chairman of the committee during Al's tenure in the Senate. As committee counsel for four years, he was responsible for all telecommunications legislation, policy, and hearings in the Senate Commerce Committee, including issues such as privacy, broadcast, cable, satellite, media ownership rules, the Internet, common carrier, spectrum, wireless issues, and oversight of the FCC. So let's go ahead and get started. First, let's talk about the expansiveness of the Internet of Things, or IoT. Basically, anything that can be switched to the Internet is a part of it, and this technology is increasingly expanding. So, Al, maybe I can start with you. Can you elaborate on how extensive IoT has become? Sure. So thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Pleasure to be here. You stated it exactly right. Anything that could be connected to the Internet potentially could be part of the Internet of Things. If it has an on-off switch, if it has electronics, if it has software, sensors, and then connectivity, it can be part of it. So that could be a phone, it could be a smartwatch or a fitness device, it could be an in-home device like a refrigerator or a microwave or a coffee maker. Basically anything that has those characteristics can be part of it. In terms of the expansiveness of it, Um, There are likely to be over 9 billion devices and a market of over 7 trillion in market value within the next two years. So that gives you a sense of the vastness of it. Wow, it's huge. Absolutely. And most people think about 
uh, the Internet of Things with respect to the consumer-type devices I was just describing. But actually, the uh, more transformational impact of the Internet of Things is more likely to be felt across industrial sectors of the economy. So it has tremendous applications for agriculture, uh, infrastructure, uh, energy, healthcare, and of course transportation, where I think most people see this most prolifically with the development of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, that's interesting because you don't think about it in that industrial part as much as you do on the consumer side, and really the focus has been on the uh, on the consumer side. So it's interesting to hear about some of these other um, applications. I mean, for example, if you think about agriculture, if you have connectivity in the field, you can look at soil content, what's going on with the weather, do you need to turn on the equipment, do you need to uh, crop dust, do you need to water it, etc., and you don't need anybody there to do that. So that dramatically impacts labor, but also efficiency of the farm and so forth. That's fascinating. So, Greta, let me ask you, can you set the landscape of current U.S. policy concerning the Internet of Things? Obviously, Al talked about how expansive it was. Is this the Wild West, or do we have some regulations uh, providing some guardrails here? You know, it's a little of both. January 2017, NTIA put out a green paper about IoT devices and goals for the federal government's regulatory bodies to kind of look at the expansiveness of where IoT is going. And, and to Al's point, you know, you just have to kind of look at stories about CES over the past four years to see the number of internet-connected devices is doubling, if not tripling, at each one of these events. So I, I do think it is a little bit of the Wild West. People are connecting everything that's possible to the internet and not really giving consumers a lot of understanding exactly what they're giving to these companies and how they're going to be using that in the future. Um, there's a bunch of different bills out there in the Congress right now. None of them, I think, is comprehensive and um, looking at the entirety of the landscape, I think, when you look at IoT. And especially when we're looking at um, potentially an infrastructure bill next Congress, I think that's really going to be very interesting because any one of these you know, new structures, there's a really big push to put IOT connectivity into bridges, into some of these other things, so we can get some sort of notification if there's any sort of um, damage to the bridge that needs to be fixed right away. But the problem is, how also are we going to be using that data? Are we going to be looking at how many people are crossing at a certain time? And, you know, as cars become increasingly connected, are they also going to connect to that IOT device where you're going to have the government essentially tracking? And there, there's a lot of different possibilities. And I don't think mo many people have a good understanding of where we could go versus where we are today. You know, to that point, Elizabeth, there's a bill by Congressman Latter from Ohio, a Republican in the House, directing the Secretary of Commerce to conduct a study about the state of IoT devices and where things stand in the United States. I think that reflects most members of Congress' understanding of this, which is that we need to learn more. There is an interesting piece of legislation by Senator Mark Warner, which is a bipartisan bill with multiple Republicans on it that I wanted to mention, because it directs executive agencies to, as they contract for the acquisition of IoT devices, make sure that those are at a sufficient standard for privacy, data security, and the like. So perhaps the government can be a driver in setting policy for how these things are proliferating in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that we face is you want to try and um, take advantage of this new technology, but it's evolving so quickly. It's hard to write legislation. It's even hard to write regulation that can keep up with the changing environment. Right. And I, I think to that point, how do you draw forward-looking legislation 
and regulatory authority when the federal government isn't particularly tech-savvy in general. And Greta, you mentioned this issue of the bridge and maybe there would be some connectivity between the bridge and a car. And is the government actually have information about individuals and their and their behavior? Um, Every time there's the sharing of data, security comes into play and who has that data and what happens to it. We've seen recently a number of uh, issues where um, the government or industry has has lost control of that data. So how do you see the government agencies, the Congress, and industry leaders working together on the need to store, track, and analyze all of the data and, and all these privacy implications that go, that go along with it? Well, I, I don't think they will work together very well, frankly. And that's the challenge for both lawmakers and industry. If you look at the Facebook hearings, it was quite clear, at least in the Senate, that a lot of the senators present lacked some of the basic understandings that most tech-savvy individuals have about how the internet works. So how are they to work together with tech-savvy companies? It's not going to be easy. The members in the House were a little further along, but even they were catching up rapidly. Um, At the same time, you have industry that's not excited about submitting itself to regulation, and so we'll be arguing that it's fine, that it's doing a great job self-policing. And so I think there's a gray area in there where forward-leaning companies may try to be first movers in the policy landscape and try to take advantage of the vacuum, but a lot will simply be um, pushing for self-regulation. No, I I agree with what Al said. And I, I think, you know, as as a Republican who looks for a smaller regulatory environment, it's um, it's it's a difficult balance here. I mean, we really do need industry buy-in to come up with some sort of forward-looking and forward-thinking kind of backbone on privacy here. But there's this really, there, there's a lot of discord now between Silicon Valley and D.C. So how do we get the Valley to kind of trust what the government is trying to do and work together effectively to create an environment that allows for innovation and allows for America to continue to be at the forefront of innovation while still protecting consumers' privacy and allow for members' constituents to believe that the government is has their best interests at heart when investing in these type of devices? I think the self-policing argument really hit a speed bump during this whole Facebook uh, incident because Facebook, I think, was slow to recognize their own problems, their own challenges, and for some long while uh, dismissed the criticisms that the company was getting. And that makes it harder for industry to argue uh, that they can do this on their own, that there can be this self-policing. So uh, it's interesting to watch this issue evolve, as, as you mentioned, Greta, because um, the, the landscape is changing so, so rapidly. There have been a number of um, Stories about an Alexa device that inadvertently transmitted a a taped phone call. Um, And so I think that's another example where industry looks like it's it's not quite pulled itself together, doesn't quite have the safeguards in place. Uh, I, I don't know if you have any reaction to that particular incident, Al, or or the broader point of what industry can do, if anything, to try and um, address this issue. Well, they're competing motives here. You have industries rationally want to maximize profit, and industries want to be good corporate citizens. 
And separately, as the Facebook episode demonstrates, they don't always know everything that their own companies are doing as they get so vast and large. Right. And so I think the Alexa example certainly concerns, certainly privacy zealots, and lots of average Americans are worried about that. But most people are going on with their Alexas and using it to buy things, listen to music, and have fun. So I do think that there's a value for these companies to engage um, because notwithstanding my earlier comment about the lack of understanding with some policymakers, there are folks, both in the Congress and in the executive branch, who really do understand these issues deeply, um, but they don't necessarily get the exposure to the tech-savvy intellectual assets in the Valley that Greta was describing, in part because a lot of those executives and engineers out there are distrusting of government. Um, And so there's a trust gap that needs to be bridged here to help resolve some of these issues. And if both sides would stop playing gotcha with each other, I think we'd be further along. You know, we've seen that the European Union has taken action on privacy in a much more aggressive way than the United States through its general data protection regulation. Do you think the U.S. is going to pass similar rules, Greta? I think that there's going there is a push among privacy advocates to do something similar. I think there's a lot of people that are looking at this as you know what the the effective reach of the GDPR is to pretty much everyone who's on the internet outside of the U.S. So if you have any any web presence in Europe you know, a dot .fr for France or dot, you know, I mean, those companies are already compliant. Now, that being said, I, I, I do think that the uh, penalty structure, I think that would be very different in the U.S. I think it's it's 4% of your annual revenue would be some of the, so if you're looking at Google, I mean, that's billions of dollars. I, I don't think you would see something that stringent here in the U.S., I do think, however, there is going to be a push. The, I don't think the Trump administration or, frankly, the Democrats, you know, if, if they were to come into power in a couple of years, would want to be viewed as being behind Europe on privacy. I think there's this little competitive nature. So I, I foresee something happening, but I don't see it being at the same levels as, as GDPR. I mean, we've been down this road before, although the times are different. In the uh, mid-90s, there was the European Privacy Directive, and there was a large push in the Congress to pass comprehensive privacy legislation, late 90s, early 2000s, on some, as as is the case now, as Greta alluded, the privacy advocates wanted to just simply mimic what Europe had done, and that was unsuccessful, um, in part because we are a much less regulatory country. Um, And I think ultimately, we will continue to be that way with respect to these issues. Um, The problem is that the web of impact of AI plus IoT is so significant and it's so much more proliferate than it was then that I think we'll need a catastrophic event to promote policy. So, Al, you were referencing AI or artificial intelligence, and I guess that that really intersects a lot with the Internet of Things. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, going back to what we're talking about with respect to the transformational impact on the economy, if you think about our energy sector or if you think about agriculture or um, the electric grid, if you have the Internet of Things and AI governing how all these things are working, that becomes a target-rich environment for hacking, for um, folks who want to mess with our economy, who want to engage in cyber warfare. And it's my belief that our policies are not – 
up to snuff on this, and that for all of the hullabaloo about whether or not the Alexa is tracking what you're saying in your kitchen, the far greater concern for our country and our policymakers ought to be, what is the threat we face with respect to our industrial security? Greta, let me ask you, um, if we did move forward with a more regulatory approach on privacy, how do you think that would look for businesses and consumers? What would be their, um, how would it change the way that they operate? I think if you look back to the Facebook hearings, overall, on both the Senate and the House side, what members, I think, expressed over and over is that most consumers don't understand what they're clicking when they click that box when they say, I accept the terms and conditions. I think, first and foremost, policymakers want to make what these companies are using your data for clear and understood by consumers when they agree to it. I mean, right now, it's, you know, 15 to 20 pages of legalese that the average, I mean, heck, the average attorney in some cases is not going to really understand fully unless they spend many billable hours trying to figure it out. So I, I think that would be the real first step in privacy. And I do think that some businesses are trying to get there. And I think that initial trust, especially when you look at startups, that's something that they're, that they're trying to do at the beginning, as opposed to Facebook trying to clear this up and clean this up for consumers at the end. And um, so that, I think, is the first step. The problem with doing broad privacy legislation is that it, it touches five or six huge sectors of the population. And, I mean, if you look at energy, healthcare, just your basic broadband connectivity, you know, all of these different sectors use your data differently. So how do you develop a privacy framework that allows for rural telehealth, but also allows for me to have a comfort level that my you know, son's pediatrician records when I go from one to the other are actually being deleted from the other files. You know, I guess my, my point is not that I think it's impossible. I think it's you have to get so many people in a room with an under, to Al's point, with an understanding, a basic understanding of privacy and where we are today. Um, I, I think it's going to be a long haul. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some companies become forward-leaning in this space, and because of the rather draconian rules that came out of Europe, they self-certify that they're honoring those regulations here in the United States. Uh, honoring their European regulations? Yes. In other words, if they, they would say, well, we take your our, your privacy so seriously, we want you to know that we're following the European directive here in the United States. Now, they'd be doing so without the risk of the fines that Greta was referring to. But they, some companies might believe that would give them a leg up in terms of consumer adoption. So they might come out and say, we are GDPR compliant sure. or something along those lines. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. GDPR has become a real buzzword. Anyone who has any sort of app on their phone has probably gotten 15 different privacy notices over the past two weeks. And that's all because of GDPR. So as Americans become more familiar with, hey, this is the reason why I'm getting all of this, I think they view GDPR as something positive. So yes, I, I could very easily see, you know, some sort of logo or sticker, you know, on on a web page. We are GDPR certified as being a really easy way to, you know, try and make some consumers comfortable with their content practices. 
So we've talked about legislation and regulation and some of the challenges and moving that forward. But some businesses might be motivated to act even in the absence of those requirements. So, Al, maybe you can speak to that. What might motivate a company to um, change its behavior, uh, even if regulation or legislation isn't imminent? Sure. So the, one of the biggest motivators in this space that we've seen is liability exposure. So if you take uh, the industrial economic side of things, companies that are building the latest whiz-bang gadget that's going to go onto the electric grid and be part of the IoT and involve you know, state-of-the-art AI – they don't want to be a portal for a cyber attack. And so they're engaging in best practices, um, compliance, standardization to make sure that they are not um, a – they are an asset, not a weakness, and that should there be a disaster, they are not exposed for liability purposes. And then on the consumer side, it's a little different, but um, it's similar in that companies have policies which, if they violate, they subject themselves to FTC enforcement. So consumers uh, are signing the uh, disclosures that Greta talked about earlier, um, and they may not know what's in them, but if the companies aren't violating what's in them, there's no liability. It's when they do violate them that they get into trouble. I do think there is a strong push among people who are really concerned or starting to get more concerned about a lapse of privacy regulation or, or you know, any sort of timeline we were looking at to develop something robust and strong that's going to fundamentally change, you know, the privacy framework in the U.S. of really empowering the FTC to kind of be the cop on the beat on these issues. And can the FTC assume that role? Do they have the resources? And what sort of fines make sense for privacy in the U.S.? I, I think that's a real question. I do think some people are talking about that. Well, it's a fascinating subject. I appreciate the input from both of you. And uh, thanks for joining us for the latest Brownstein podcast. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.